Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. through 25. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This temple took forty-six years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Many people like to only think of Jesus as a calm, mild-mannered, only about love and gentleness kind of guy. And so when we get to a passage like this one, it can be fairly surprising, right? Because he doesn't meet our expectations, that we've got the gentle Lamb of God, that's how Jesus has been referred to up until this point in the book of John. The gentle Lamb of God now has entered the temple and become a roaring lion. It doesn't fit within our neat little box of Jesus, you know, here's this loving guy. Now you see, if, if your God never challenges your biases, or your expectations, or your way of thinking, or if you never have to like, like conform, if you never have to conform your life to who he is, as opposed to you conforming like God to how you wanna be, like if, if you never get challenged by God, then it's quite possible that you worship a God of your own imagination. Like you worship a God that you've, that you've invented, like, like a, a God, uh, in the way of of how you wish he would be, to fit the way you would want him to be. And so when Jesus challenges our expectations like this, it's one way to know that we're seeing Jesus for who he really is and not just how we wish he would be, right? And so the reason that Jesus acted in this unexpected way is because he's showing us a couple things this morning. Jesus is showing us that there is a kind of religion that he despises and that there is a kind of belief that he doubts. A kind of religion that he despises and a kind of belief that he doubts. And if we're gonna see, like, like if we're to understand this religion he despises and this belief that he doubts, we need to understand what Jesus was mad about and why he was mad about it. What he was angry about, why he was angry about it. And so what was Jesus angry about? What was going on here? Well, Jesus was angry about improper worship. 
improper worship. It was the time of the Jewish Passover, which meant that people from all around the known world are coming to Jerusalem, right? That, that they're coming to offer sacrifices in the temple. They're coming to worship God. They're traveling from all these distances. And so this is why there are people in the temple who are selling oxen and sheep and doves, because it makes sense. It's kind of a nice service to have so that that way you're not having to drag these animals kind of all over the place, like days of travel and miles and miles of walking. And it's like, oh man, what a what an inconvenience it is to like have to bring the animals with me. So it's kind of nice. You get there and you can buy your animal for the, for the required temple sacrifice. You can bring it in there with you. It's a convenient service. And this kind of makes sense of the money changers as well, right? And so like, like when my wife and I lived in Chicago, just down the street, there was a Western Union. There are Western Unions all over the place. Why is that? Well, you have a big city where people from all over the world are coming, but there's really only one currency accepted in the city, but there's all these other currencies from all around the world. So you need this kind of currency exchange. That's what's happening here with the money changers. It's like the first century Western Union. Are they coming to the temple? They need to buy the animals. And in order to buy the animals, they have to have a certain kind of currency. And so there's the money changers to give them the currency that they need. It all kind of works out, right? You're like, this makes sense. Like this is convenient. This is nice. What a, what a nice benevolent service to offer these travelers. And so what is the big deal, Jesus? Why are you freaking out about this? Like, this makes total sense. They can't come empty-handed. So what do you, what do you want? Why, why are you freaking out? Well, notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say that they shouldn't be selling animals. And Jesus doesn't say that there shouldn't be money changers. What does he say? Verse 16, it's real important. He says, get these things out of here. Out of here. See, all of this is happening in the temple. See, Jesus' main problem wasn't mainly what they were doing. It was where they were doing it. That was his main issue. It wasn't what they were doing. It was where they were doing it. Because the reality is, is that they could have set up shop across the street. Even better, they could have set up shop kind of, kind of anywhere along the way in the Kindron Valley, which was kind of the main, you know, traveling, you know, way into Jerusalem. They could have set up anywhere else to provide this service, to sell these animals, to change this money, but they decided to set up right in the temple. And many commentators agree that the place where they probably most likely set up was in the court of the Gentiles. So you have the temple, this is Herod's temple, and there's different sections within the temple. And so you couldn't just walk around wherever you want. This wasn't like a museum, you know, like there were certain places for certain people. And so Gentiles, non-Jews had a place, they, they couldn't go everywhere in the temple, but there was a place set aside specifically for Gentiles. Here is the place, if you are not a Jew, if you are from anywhere else in the nations. And if you want to come worship God, you are welcome, but you need to stay in this place. There was one spot where they could worship God. And so not only are animals being bought and sold in the temple, it's most likely that they're being bought and sold in the place that non-Jews, in the only place that non-Jews could come and participate in worship. That's a problem. It's the only place they have. 
It's the only place they can be. It's kind of like when my kids, they go to their room, they grab their clothes, and then they go and change in the bathroom. Why is that a problem? Because I can only go to the bathroom in the bathroom. You can change your clothes wherever. Right? Like, go change them in your room. Why are you moving it from your room into the bathroom? Like, I have to go to the bathroom and I've only got one place I can do it. And now you've locked me out, right? Like, that's a problem. And so what was happening was that this, this thing that was disguised as a service was actually an obstacle to the worship of God among the nations, Looked like a service, didn't it? But it was actually pushing out foreigners from being able to worship the one true God. You see, the kind of religion that Jesus despises is the kind of religion full of people whose zeal for comfort and convenience is greater than their zeal for God-glorifying, God-worshiping, others loving, others, others serving, others including worship. The kind of religion Jesus despises is a kind of religion that is more zealous for my own convenience, my own comfort, my own preferences than it is zealous for the inclusion of the nations in the worship of God. You see, improper worship is when my thing distracts from the main thing but like bleach in the laundry, Jesus was zealous to purify God's place and to purify God's people. And you see, Jesus has not changed. He is still zealous. He has this same zeal for his church and his people today. He has this same zeal for us that as a gathered body and as individuals that we would glorify God and worship him in an undistracting way, that our lives would be filled with undistracted worship and that we would be concerned for the undistracted worship of the nations. Jesus is zealous to drive out anything in our lives that distracts us or others from worshiping God truly, purely, and fully. Archbishop William, William Temple once said that your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your true religion, your true God, is actually the thing that your mind defaults to when it has nothing else to think about. What in your life distracts you from worshiping God? What in your life are you more concerned about than worshiping God? See, I have to wonder if over the last several months, has, has your zeal for this God-glorifying God-focused, others-loving, others-serving worship, has your zeal for that been replaced by, wait for it, your zeal for the preservation of your personal rights or your personal safety? Yeah, I'm going there. Are you more zealous for your politics and your opinions than you are for purity and unity? Be more passionate about these things. What, what, what would your newsfeed say? 
What would the articles you're sharing say? What would the basis of your, what would the, what would the orienting center of your conversations say that you are zealous about in these days? See, here's the thing. I've been so, so incredibly encouraged. I, I can't express how encouraged I've been by you, by our church, that in these times when, when opinions abound, good luck finding someone who doesn't have an opinion, when opinions abound and when tensions are running high, like there's just a lot going on, I've been so incredibly encouraged that many, many, many of you are fighting more for love and unity than you are for your own preferences. Just a couple weeks ago, this was before the mask mandate, I went to a connection group and it was one of our younger connection groups actually, and the whole group is wearing masks and I'm like, okay, that's fine. And come to find out, the the reason why the group was doing that is because there was one person in the group that didn't feel comfortable coming unless people were wearing masks. I didn't know who it was. You could not tell who this one person was. And I still don't know who, who it is. But the whole group said, so that we can love them and include them, I will put aside my preferences gladly joyfully, undistractingly. Nobody, it just seemed normal. Nobody said anything. Set aside preferences for love and unity. What an amazing godly example that is to our church. Our church, you guys have been tremendous, but I want to say something very clearly. I wanna be very straight up with you. If you are more passionate about preserving your constitutional rights than that God is worshiped in your life and your family and among the nations, you have become distracted. If you are more passionate about preserving your constitutional rights than you are about God's worship among the nations, you are becoming distracted and are in danger of becoming a distraction. You see, I'm grateful for our country, don't get me wrong. I am, I'm incredibly grateful for the freedoms that we have and for the many people who have served our country in the military and in a variety of ways, but make no mistake, church, we have one sacred text and it is not the Constitution. It is the Word of God spoken and breathed out by God for our benefit and for his glory. We ought not to be more zealous for American liberty than we are for Christian unity. And so we as a church, Candeo Church, flag in the ground, we will not divide over masks, we will not divide over politics, but we will fight for unity, a peculiar kind of unity. It's not peculiar if we are unified and we all agree about the same things. That makes sense. Anyone can be unified by that, but it's, it is a a peculiar kind of gospel unity when a group of people can come together, love one another, set aside our personal preferences, and we actually don't agree. That is a witness to the nations of the power of the gospel in his people. You don't have to love mass, but we will love each other. And the problem was actually worse than it seemed because you see the improper worship that was happening externally in the temple was actually a symptom of the improper worship that was happening, that was happening internally in their hearts. So look at verse 23 here. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. 
Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he, he himself knew what was in man. So this starts off great, right? Like Jesus is at the Passover festival. Many are believing in his name. That's something that we celebrate. Like last week, four students in Salt Company received Christ as their Lord and Savior. Like that is something we're celebrating. That is an amazing thing. We celebrate this, like, like faith and belief in Jesus Christ. Awesome. Like what's the big deal here? But do you see what it says? Jesus would not entrust himself to them. That word entrust literally means believe. So while they believed in Jesus, Jesus didn't believe in them. Why? Look at verse 23. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. You see, Jesus looked for genuine conversion, not just an enthusiasm for the spectacular. Many believed in his name, but it was only a belief that was attracted to Jesus because of how he could benefit them. Because who in their right mind isn't impressed with spectacular things? Right? Like who in their right mind doesn't want Jesus to benefit their life? Like doesn't want the benefits, doesn't want help in their life, doesn't want help with the next thing, doesn't want to be a better person. Who in their right mind doesn't want their felt needs met? How about this? Who in their right mind doesn't want 30 free gallons of the best wine ever created at their wedding? Like who doesn't want that, right? Like that's what Jesus just did. Like who doesn't want that? But the reason Jesus was angry in the temple is the same reason that he doubts their belief here. It's because those who were selling in the temple and those whose belief was based on miracles only saw their association with God as a means to an end. They only wanted God when he was giving them what they wanted. You see, the kind of belief that Jesus doubts is the kind of belief that when life is going well, team Jesus. That when things are going great, team Jesus. That when associating with Jesus, when being a Christian, when, when being part of his church body like gives me some sort of like social cachet or I can get more friends or it's a good thing within the community, like when my, when my association with God and the people of God and the things of God are benefiting me, team Jesus. But when the benefits are gone, when the vibe is gone, like when, that, when, the, when, the, like when the goosebumps are gone, like oh, I'm just, it just doesn't give me that feeling anymore. Like, like worship is great when I feel this way and it's not when I feel that way. When the goosebumps are gone, when the advantages are gone, it's the kind of faith that when all of those things are gone, the faith is gone. Now don't get me wrong here. Miracles, not a bad thing. The spectacular you know, miraculous things that God has done and will continue to do, not a bad thing. The, even the benefits that we receive from being a Christian are not a bad thing. 
In fact, we see, we're going to see throughout the book of John that miracles were actually often the very things that initiated faith in Christ. That, that was one of the purposes, was, so that, was that miraculous things would happen and people would sit up and take notice and go, wow, never seen that before, like, and become interested in Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with a faith that is initiated by miracles. There is something incredibly wrong with a faith that is based on miracles. I'll put it this way. Some of you guys, uh, the first thing you noticed about your wife, girlfriend, whatever, was the way she looked. Like some of you, like you, you've got, maybe you got your Zoom class and you just can't wait till that box pops up and you're like, oh man, I, I hope she like logs in today. And then you can like stare at her the whole time and it's not weird. It's weird. It's still weird. Okay, just because she doesn't see you staring, it's still weird, right? Like, because, you know, like, like the first thing that attracted you to your crush or your fiance or your wife was like her physical appearance. Like she walked in the room and you're like, praise God from whom all beauty flows. Like, you're like, I don't know that person, but I want to get to know that person. Like, like, wow, right? You know, and that's kind of cute. We, we laugh at that. It's like, oh, you thought she was pretty when you first saw her and all that stuff. That's great. Fast forward. And you're sitting in my living room with my wife and I for premarital counseling. And I ask you, why do you, Joe, want to marry her? If the only thing you say is because she's really pretty, that's a problem. Because we all know that a relationship based on how she looks rather than who she is, is a big problem. That a relationship initiated by physical attraction, physical appearances, that's fine. A relationship based on physical attraction, physical appearances, that's a relationship that is bound to fail. Why? Because the looks will eventually fade. And someone prettier will eventually walk in the room. And a relationship based on physical attraction will be a relationship destroyed by physical attraction. And if your belief in Jesus is only as strong as the benefits you get from associating with Jesus, you have the kind of faith that Jesus doubts. You see, cultural Christianity says, seek God's goods and seek God's gifts. But biblical Christianity says, seek God because he is good. Seek God because he is the greatest gift. You see, cultural Christianity is faith that is only there when God is good to you. But biblical Christianity is a faith that stays in the fire and endures through the, through the trial because you know that God is good for you. It's the faith that sings with Horatio Spafford after his daughters drown in the Atlantic when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, he has taught me to say it is well. It is well with my soul. It's the faith that sings with Job in Job chapter 13. He says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Though he take everything on this earth that I love, 
My love is in the one who is not of this earth. How can you tell if your belief is based on the benefits of Jesus rather than the person of Jesus? Just look at what happens to your belief. Look at what happens to your faith when suffering comes. When the trials roll in. Look at what happens to your belief when your belief doesn't seem beneficial. There's a woman, uh, she's, she's gone now. Her name was Elizabeth Elliot. And Elizabeth Elliot was only married for seven years. And those, that seven years worth of marriage was actually with two marriages because both of her husbands died. This is a woman who's experienced tremendous suffering. And she says in her books, uh, she says in her book, suffering is never for nothing. She writes, if your faith rests in your idea of how God is supposed to answer your prayers, then that kind of faith is very shaky and is bound to be demolished when the storms of life hit it. But if your faith rests on the character of him who is the eternal I am, then that kind of faith is rugged and will endure. You see, Jesus doubts belief that is based solely on benefits because all of those benefits, all of those miracles, all of those spectacular things were only meant to be pointers pointing to the main point. Pointers to the miracle that wasn't just to benefit our momentary physical needs, but our eternal spiritual need. Because you and I think that what we need is resolutions. That what we need, like, like New Year's resolutions, like I just need to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I just need to resolve to get better. I need to resolve to do better. I need to resolve to have these new habits or be on this new diet. I need to resolve to be a new person. But see this, we don't need resolutions. We need resurrection. We don't need to determine and resolve of, of something within ourselves to make us different. We need resurrection to make us new. And that's what Jesus points to in verse 19. This is why he says when, when he goes and messes up the place and they say, give us a sign for why you do this. In verse 19, he says, you want a sign? Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. But he wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about his body. See, what Jesus was saying was that you believe you can come into the presence of a holy God carrying bloody sacrifices as a way of atoning for your sin, but I tell you, I am the temple. I am the priest. I am the sacrifice. I am the solution to the problem that you don't even see that you have. You see, zeal for the purity of God's temple consumed Jesus and drove him to make a whip of cords to cleanse the temple that was filled with sin. But don't you see, all of that was just pointing to the day. The day that would come where Jesus, the true and greater temple of God, would be filled with the sin of the world, driven outside the city gates and destroyed by God's pure wrath on our behalf. You see, Jesus who made a whip of cords to drive sin out of his father's house, would one day take the whip of God's wrath so that we could be invited into the father's household. Don't base your belief on what Jesus can do for you. Base your belief on what Jesus has done for you. He took the punishment on your behalf 
He was buried in your grave under God's wrath and judgment, but rose again in newness of life so that we could have newness of life. Don't base your faith in Jesus being able to help you with your resolutions. Base your faith in the power of Jesus's resurrection. It's that kind of faith, that kind of faith that, when, that whether the healing comes or the sickness remains, whether the womb remains empty or the table is filled, it's that kind of faith that rests in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we will say in sickness and in health, in the good times, in the bad times, that we would join with the psalmist, say, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I don't know what you're going through this morning, but I do know that we have a resurrected savior who can bear the weight of your belief, bear the weight of your faith, trust in Christ today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you rose from the grave victoriously. Father, that you saw us in our helpless estate, unable to save ourselves, unable to bring what was necessary to satisfy your wrath. Yet you stepped in, sent your son to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved and to rise again so that we might be invited into your household. Thank you for the blood of Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.